Hi, and welcome to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this episode, I welcome three fantastic guests. Omar Salgado was the first overall pick in the 2011 MLS Super Draft by the Vancouver Whitecaps. Additionally, he played in the youth national team systems of both Mexico and the United States. Towards the end of his professional career, he decided to pursue a career in law and last spring graduated from Northeastern University with his law degree. Along with Omar, I'm joined by Alfredo Bosalango and Marcos Villeda. Both are recent graduates of the College of William & Mary who played soccer. Alfredo and Marcos had questions about pursuing professional soccer and law school. We decided to do portions of this episode in Spanish. This one is jam-packed with stories and great information. Please enjoy. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast, so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on social media as well. The links can be found at matchplayrecruit.com. Yeah, go ahead, Marco. Sorry. Omar, so you said you graduated in May, right? Yeah, I, I just graduated in May. Um, started work two weeks ago. I took the bar in July. So it's, yeah, it's all kind of been kind of quick. What, what's, what's your plan? What do you want to... What are you aiming for? What schools do you want to hit? Well, I'll answer that question. But first, I was going to tell you, my sister took the July bar as well. Oh, wow. She graduated. Yeah. She she graduated from American University. Okay. She has yet to receive her results back. Um, So I'm guessing you must have gotten yours back or you're still waiting on them. No, I don't receive it till October 27th. So I still got, I mean, basically another month and a half left before I have to I honestly I have no idea. It takes like three months. I, I don't is really it, understand it. Is it writing or, or is it like something that, okay. All right. Yeah. Half, All right. half of the test is in writing. The other okay. half just circle bubbles. So gotcha. yeah, I guess it's the right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to, and to answer your question, I want to stay in Virginia because I would okay. help out a lot to save some money and just be near my parents. Okay. Um, I also don't want to go too far away from them. I'm kind of a, mama's boy so it would be difficult to you know go to california um i'm actually applying to university of california berkeley okay that's one of the schools um and then the virginia ones are uva george washington georgetown um some ivy leagues but those are in god's hands you know <laughs> to get in <laughs> i'll need to and then boston college as well and okay. boston university nice that's really that's awesome man that's yeah, really so cool I, i'm gonna need whatever lsat tips you got because <laughs> I, I'm I'm really not liking those logical games right now. Did, did did you take it already, or is this going to be your first time? It's going to be my first time. I'm thinking okay. of taking the November one, uh, but it depends how I feel in like mid October, okay. because I want to get the best score possible. If not, I'll take the January one and then just have a later application. Yeah, it's it's definitely a very uh, rough test and um, it takes a lot out of you. I I studied for a year. Um, before I was like, all right, I feel ready enough to actually take it. Um, mm. I mean, I, I had the time, so I, I could take as long as I kind of wanted. But um, it's, yeah, it's, I only took it once. It's grueling. I didn't want to do it again. I was like, that's that's enough for me. Whatever I get into, I get into at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's how my sister felt. Was like, like one time, 
whatever I get, I get. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I, I yeah. don't mind to get into the details, but did you like what was the dates that you studied from? What was the what? Sorry, the dates that you studied from. Did you do so, like uh, January to January or November to November? Yeah, I I took the test. I think I took was it the March test? I think, um, mm -hmm. and I I basically studied for the year. I was in I was playing in Monterrey, and um, I asked. I guess after a game, I asked if I could. Uh, no, actually, I missed the game. I missed the weekend game, so I could take the LSAT because, um, I mean, yeah, I, there. I, I remember there was a way to take it on Monday, but um, the only people who can take it on Monday is if you're, the only way you can take it on Monday is if you're Jewish. I'm not Jewish, so um, hmm. was, yeah, I had to take it on Saturday. So no, I, had, I had no idea about that rule. That's <laughs> yeah, so I. I I tried my best. I tried to convince them, but no, it didn't, didn't work. So I had to miss a game. You didn't but convert. I, I, yeah, I, I tried my best too. <laughs> but it, yeah, I, I think you have to have some Jewish ancestry to become Jewish too. I, I did research it as well. <laughs> but no, it didn't work out. <laughs> what were you doing in Monterey playing? Uh, I was playing for Tigres. I, uh, I was there for almost four years. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess this was 2018. So it was basically six months before I came back to the U S cause I, I signed back in all for the team in El Paso in June of 2018. And I took that test March of 2018. Um, and I kind of held it, didn't really apply to schools till COVID cause, uh, I didn't really know when I wanted to retire. And, um, I saw the opportunity during COVID where I could, I could continue to play and study just because school was online and all law yeah. schools were online. So I just applied um, during that year thinking, oh, well, I'll do my first year and then I'll figure out the other two. Maybe I'll push them back, defer, um, and continue playing. But I tore my ACL um, my first year of law school during my first semester. And that was the second ACL tear and it just – I mean, it was like my seventh or eighth surgery, and I was just like, "All right, well, the silver lining is I'm I'm already in law school. Um, mm. I didn't want to retire, but it's just it all kind of happened and all uh, developed. I mean, this, the silver lining was I was in law school and it made the decision a lot easier. But um, yeah, I mean, I was still relatively young. But yeah, do you always know you wanted to do law school, or how did that come about? Not not really. I. So initially when, when I got drafted, I mean, I was 16 um, and I, I basically didn't really go to high school. I ended up taking my GD because, um, well, yeah, I, I moved to Vancouver and there was really no high school I could go to that fit my schedule. Um, so I, I, I kind of not, I, yeah, I, I put school on the back end and just didn't really think about it until I got mm -hmm. injured a year later. Um, and I, I couldn't come back from the injury. It took me like two years. I kept re-breaking my foot. Um, you know, doctors couldn't figure it out. And, uh, I, I kind of started thinking like, I mean, I'm, I might not be able to play again. And some of the doctors thought, you know, it was basically over. I wouldn't be able to come back. Um, so that's when I started rethinking, all right, well, maybe I do kind of need a backup plan. And, um, I was 18 at the time and I took my GD and then applied for some schools and got into Northeastern um, and did most of my schooling 
or actually everything, all of my school online. Uh, I did my undergrad, my master's at Northeastern online. So I kind of, yeah, kind of went that route, but um, yeah, that injury kind of changed my whole perspective of things. Um, Thankfully it happened very early. (laughs) Yeah. Was it tough to do, uh, I'm sorry, Marcos, was it tough to do online school and, and play at the same time? It was, it was tough. It was tough, but, um, I had kind of already developed a, the discipline in a way of like kind of balancing both, um, things at the same time. And, um, I mean, as a professional athlete, you train two days, two hours a day, three hours max, and then you go home and you have, you know, from one o'clock till you go to bed every single day. So in reality, it's up to you what you do with that time. And, um, I kind of used it for, for school. Um, you know, other than when we were traveling, it wasn't too difficult to finish my homework and do what I had to do, um, during that time. So yeah, it was, it it wasn't too, too rough. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine one of the biggest struggles you must have had in that first year of law school was the mental aspect of it because your injury coincided with the first year, which is known in law school as one of the most tough ones. (laughs) How did you how did you go about just staying yeah, strong I, and, and going hard with it? Honestly, I had no idea what I was doing my first year of law school. I went into law school. I mean, I, there's no lawyers in my family, and I didn't really understand what law school meant. Um, you know, undergrad and, ma- and ma- my undergrad and my master's to me wasn't, I mean, it wasn't easy, but it came relatively, I mean, yeah, it, it wasn't very difficult. Whereas law school was a completely different ballgame that I didn't really realize um, was that difficult? I mean, the, the fact that you compete against all your classmates, I, I didn't realize that I was competing for an A with, you know, the other 200 people in my class. So it was, I mean, yeah, I didn't really understand the uh, magnitude of what law school really meant, especially my first year. And yeah, the injury kind of, yeah, it took me out for like a month. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't recover well from the surgery and I was, I mean, yeah, it was, it was like a, it was a rough year, but I, I didn't do too terrible where I could recover my second year. Um, so it, it, it worked out in the end. <laughs> I, I ended up, you know, getting a good job either way. So it, it didn't, um, it didn't hurt me too much. Even though you didn't know what you were getting yourself into, did you enjoy the first year? Um, no, <laughs> no. Um, I I don't think law school is particularly fun at all. Um, it's it's like I mean yeah, it's it's kind of grueling. Everyone, especially for for my year, I felt like it was online, so I didn't really develop that many relationships with other people. I mean, a few, but not really that many. So the competition felt even a little stronger than maybe other years where you know you had classmates where you were friends with here it was just like everyone was on their own or at least from my perspective that's how it felt um so it it was definitely different um but it's it's interesting looking back at it it was interesting what i was learning i wouldn't i wouldn't say i use all all of everything that i learned that first year or that second year in work now but it definitely you know sets up i guess a foundation for what you need to know People always talk about the cold calling as a main thing in law school. Was that big at Boston College? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of scary. I <laughs> actually, my first year, I mean, I think that, that teacher didn't like me very much. 
I, I was coming back from practice and I got cold called in the car and I was, I was zooming in for my car and I answered driving and, uh, she was very upset. She, she wasn't happy about it, but I couldn't do anything about it. I was like balancing, you know, going into training and then going back and being in class. And I mean, yeah, um, it was definitely that those six months where I was doing both, it was really difficult. Um, but it, it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's cold calling? Um, it essentially it's just that the teacher asks you a question about you know whatever law and you have to answer and you don't know who's getting called or what the question will be. So you kind of they they send you readings to do you know for every class and if you're not prepared then you know you're definitely not answering the question. Um, right. So it's kind of scary because you know everyone kind of everyone's kind of looking at you to make sure you're answering correctly and if you don't you know it can be talked about after (laughs) right yeah well hopefully didn't ask you about you know the law about you know using a cell phone while you're driving and (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah i was i I was trying my best (laughs) so i mean to me like the obvious question is like how do you feel like being an athlete and the discipline that you had from being an athlete, how did that help you as you were going through law school? I, I, I mean, I, I truly, and I mean, from my experience, the discipline that you developed throughout your entire childhood playing sports um, and, you know, becoming a professional athlete is, I mean, it, it's unteachable in a way and um, it's invaluable because um, most of my, I would say most of my teammates that, you know, leave the sport and go into something else, I feel like the discipline that we develop um, kind of helps them become successful in anything else that they do. Um, And yeah, it definitely helped me throughout my entire, not only law school, but throughout my school years, you know, I I basically did it for nine years. So um, I definitely needed to develop it. a discipline and a routine every day to be able to do it all. Right. Yeah. Well, feeding off that question, because you said you got drafted at 16 years old, right? Yeah. Well, (laughs) I'm guessing you were already a very disciplined person from before that. Um, Was it because you was taught at home or was it because soccer taught you that? And then you ended up applying it on other fields. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I guess I always, I always knew I wanted to be a professional athlete and I tried to stay away or do as much as I could to make that dream happen. And that meant obviously being very disciplined about certain things. Like till this day, you know, I, I never drink or I never did. I've never been drunk in my life. I didn't um, really do any, I I mean, I didn't really party much. Um, I, you know, I go out once in a while, but um, I kept it, you know, as healthy as I could, I try to eat as healthy as I could. I obviously still got injured a lot throughout my career, but there was things that were not under my control. But um, I guess I I always tried to control what I what I could and um, try to be as healthy as I possibly could, so that I could perform as at, at a high level for as long as I possibly could. Um, which is, I mean, I, I would say. 50% of uh, the guys in the locker room will be at, you know, will be very disciplined and the other 50 likely won't. And the ones that last the most are the ones that are very 
or the ones that are most likely to last the most because there are exceptions um, are the ones that are obviously very disciplined and, you know, they end up playing till the 37, 38. Didn't happen to me, but <laughs> it happens to a lot of them for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I bet you've been in locker rooms though where it's been harder to be the guy that's disciplined than in others because you might feel like you don't have as much support, especially, you know, I feel like those young years might have been the hardest. I would like to know a little bit about that. How do you get through those situations where you're like, damn, like I'm the only one not drinking on this night out or I'm the only one that's not going out and actually sleeping where the rest of the team is out? How do you manage that? I, I've, I've always thought of that and I, I never really, at, I was so young that I didn't really think about these things at the time. And I didn't, I mean, I, I was too young to really, or I thought I was too young to be an, an example or to be a leader in a group. And I never really tried until the end in reality, until my last two, three years. Whereas, you know, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I could have possibly stepped up, but I was kind of thinking about my own performance and my own ability to, you know, succeed on the field. And after so many injuries, I was kind of, I mean, yeah, I, my, my main goal was to become a you know, regular starter and MLS or whatever it was. And when it didn't happen, I would get frustrated with myself and kind of, I mean, all I really was thinking about was trying me in a way at, at such a young age and looking back at it. I mean, yeah, I learned more my last three, three, four years in a locker room than I did, you know, when I was 16, 17, 18, I, I didn't really realize what it was happening to me. I mean, I, I look back at it and I, I didn't really know where I was at or the opportunity that I had, um, you know, having been drafted so young and been drafted with such high expectations. Um, I kind of pressure myself to live up to those expectations a little, and it was definitely, um, very difficult to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to know a little bit more about that draft process because you're the first person that I've ever heard that got drafted at 16 years old in yeah. <laughs> college too. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I was playing for, uh, so I was, I was playing for the U20 national team. I was playing an age group above with, um, at the time it was Thomas Rongan, the coach and his son, uh, Chris McLutis was an agent or his stepson was an agent or was trying to become an agent. And I, I remember I went to a camp and I did really well, um, in San Jose and I was still playing for Chivas in Mexico. I was playing for their academy and Chris McLutis, who has, was my agent for my entire career, he came up to me and said, you know, I think there's an opportunity for you to, um, you know, declare for the draft and, uh, sign for MLS. And I obviously was all for it. I thought it was a, a great idea. Um, I had actually, I had just decided to leave Mexico because we got in this huge um, bus accident where our doctor died. And it was, I mean, it, it was very tragic. And that made well, me want to leave Mexico. That, I, I, I wasn't having a good time in Mexico. And I was only 15 at the time. And yeah, I, I just, I wanted to get out. I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go back with my family. And my plan was to go back to high school and, um, you know, play for my local team and just go to college. I, I actually, I had verbally committed to a university and I just said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go play college. I'm, I'm done. Um, and in this camp, I did so well. I, you know, I scored a couple goals and he, 
presented me this opportunity to go play in MLS. And I said, yes, you know, a month later I signed an MLS. I was at another camp at the mill cup in, um, in Ireland, Northern Ireland. And, you know, they gave me the contract and I signed it. It was you know, good, good deal. I signed generation Didas and I mean, it, it was awesome. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was, it all happened in literally a month and the draft was until, uh, January, it was January 13th. So I, for the next three months, I finished this camp and I went to Northern Ireland and played the Mill Cup. And then I trained with the first three dra- draft picks. I trained with Vancouver, Portland, and DC. Um, and then Vancouver had the first pick. They ended up picking me up. I, you know, I got along really well with the head coach there. Um, and they liked me enough to get me, you know, so young. <laughs> yeah. It was, okay. yeah, it was, it was very cool. Um, <laughs> And I'm very appreciative of the fact that, you know, I was drafted first overall, but it also comes with a lot of pressure that um, looking back at it was, was difficult to deal with, especially coming into an expansion team that in reality was brand new and hadn't really fully developed and had, I mean, you know, we, we, we had to basically, the, the idea was to win, not develop kids or players that were 16, you know what I mean? So it was, yeah, it, it, it was, I think it was difficult for me to try and live up to an expectation that I had set up for myself at such, you know, a young age, I guess. And yeah, I mean, may, maybe in, in a, in a different circumstance, it would have played out very differently. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I bet. And, I was very curious, actually, about why you switched from the Mexico national teams to the the U.S. national teams. But I guess it was because of the story that you mentioned, which, honestly, that's very scary to hear. Um, but I'm also curious, so, about the expectations, because I think you also trained with some Premier League teams, right? Um, was that ever, like, an option? Or was it ever, like, you know, told by your agents, like, hey, you have a couple good years here, like, we'll take you to, you know, the Prem or something like that? Because I feel like that's how usually goes with, with you have put you, you have very young players like you were and, and, you know, very high expectations. Yeah. I, so my, my, right when I signed an MLS in that milk cup, I did really well in that milk cup, all the big clubs in Europe, they go watch, you know, I played all the big national teams and it's, it's a big youth tournament and Everton saw me play there and decided to invite me to train with them. Um, I, I did really, really well at Everton and, um, I trained with the U20s or I don't remember exactly who, U23s. And I did really, really well. And they, they had decided they wanted to buy me, but they would only pay, I mean, at the time, I think it was $300,000 or $400,000. And because MLS, you know, thought that I was going to be a star, they were putting the, the price at like $2 million and I had already signed in MLS. Um, I mean, I, I this is very far back but i remember it was something like that like the price range was too too large for everton and they weren't going to spend on you know an unproven 16 year old 15 year old um so then i ended up just going to the draft instead of you know going to everton and trying there i also i got injured at everton (laughs) two weeks after i started playing and i i tore my hamstring um and they i was about to start training with the first team right before i i got injured and then i got injured and i just went home and then they tried to negotiate something and it just didn't work out. And then my second year, 
or my first year playing in MLS when I was in Vancouver, I was allowed to go train for Fulham for my, you know, month or and a half that I was, that, cause, just because the season is so different. Yeah. Um, they allowed me to go train a month and a half in Fulham. And at Fulham, I, I didn't do as well. I, I, I mean, I was so young that I didn't really understand the opportunity that I had to you know, show myself or whatever. And I kind of took it. I remember I kind of took it as a vacation in a way. I, I mean, not not that I took it as vacation, but I didn't really take it as serious as I should have. And um, I mean, I had just gotten off my first season in MLS, and you know, I, in the first season I played enough games, and um, I remember they. Oh, I thought it. I thought that it was kind of you know disappointing that they, they would put me to train with the reserves at Fulham. So I was like, I don't want. Like, I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm training in MLS. Like, why am I training with the reserves like this? Yeah. I mean, I was just a kid and kind of, yeah, kind of a little brat, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I'm always curious whenever people do trials with, with teams like that, are there any names on the Everton team or the Fulham team that we might recognize today that you saw play and were like, wow, this guy's just a different level? Yeah, I mean, I... So with both teams, I did end up training with the first team, not every day, but I did train with the first team. So I remember at Everton, I, you know, I trained once or twice with Arteta, um, Tim Howard, and a couple of other of their big stars. Um, in at Fulham, I, I got to know a little bit more of them, and, and um, I trained with the first team a lot more. Um, I remember, you know, the guy, he didn't play much at all, but the guy that was really nice to me and would give me rides all the time, Orlando Sa, and then I, obviously Clint Dempsey was incredibly nice to me. You know, I got to stay at his house a couple of times with wow. his family. Um, he took me around London. It was it was pretty awesome. We we had the same agent, so um, Clint was you know really nice to me, and the training would always help me. And um, he's he's an incredible person. Him and his wife were incredible, and they treated me really well the month and a half that I was around. So um, yeah, I mean. I got to hang out with some of the really, I mean, some really cool people. Um, yeah. I, like I said, at the time, I didn't realize it. Like I was, yeah. you know, it was just another day. But looking back at it, I'm like, oh, that was really, really cool. In all these stories that you've mentioned, I realized that you've been alone in them. Um, and alone as in like you were such a young guy abroad without your parents. When you were in Mexico, you said that you missed them a lot. What, what role did they play? in your life because just you had an agent um, and I don't know what the, the legal matters of that is, but yeah. What role do they play in your, in your career at such a young age? I mean, with, without them, I would have never, first of all, I would have never become a professional athlete just because I mean, the United States, it's kind of difficult without your parents because, or back then it was very difficult because you always had to go to different tournaments and, you know, to be in a competitive environment. Um, well, I had to get out of El Paso just because El Paso wasn't as competitive as, um, you know, all the big tournaments were in other places. So, um, thankfully my dad was very invested in, you know, me doing well in soccer. And I would basically go on to a tournament almost every other week, you know, all across the country. And, um, yeah, when I became professional, you know, it was a little difficult cause I was, you know, I had, I was 16 living in my own apartment and although it sounds really cool, um, it, it was, it was definitely a, uh, I mean, yeah, it took some time to get used to, you know, I, I kind of had to learn how to, I, I tried to learn how to cook. It didn't really work out. So I ended up just ordering meal preps all the time. Uh, I, yeah, it was, it was definitely different. I, 
I definitely um, struggled a little bit the first year, and then you know you kind of get used to it, and that was it. But um, it's not like you had your Uber Eats or DoorDash back then, where you could just no. facilitate. <laughs> that that actually slowly started coming in two, three, four years after I started playing. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely not. I would just go to there's a restaurant up the street that I was probably their best customer. I would eat there almost you know every day and. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I was trying to figure out the club would give us some food once in a while. Um, I think, I mean, yeah, back then MLS was so different. Just you know, now I, I I'm in Columbus now, and I visited their their um, training facilities, and it's you know night and day to what it used to be. Now you know the academy gets food. The first team there's a you know in house chef all day, all the time. You can basically stay there and you know hang out all day. There's beds. There's there's everything now. There's a gym there. There's yeah, now MLS kind of you know has the infrastructure of the Premier League in a way. It's pretty incredible. Right. Yeah, I bet that was one of the most shocking things about going to Everton and Fulham, right? Comparing the facilities that they had there probably with the ones that you were used to here in the US. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Everton and Fulham's training facilities were pretty incredible. I would say Everton's training facility was was top-notch it was very very nice Fulham's was older it was nice but it was older um Everton's was unreal I mean <laughs> now every single MLS team has you know a facility or almost every single MLS team has a facility just as good or probably better than um Everton at that time but um back then that didn't exist at all I don't I don't think there was a single club uh in MLS that had a in, the infrastructure like that I mean the best one probably was LA Galaxy and they're I mean now you look at it and you're like this this sucks compared to all the other clubs so yeah yeah it's, yeah, it's crazy how, how much it's growing um oh yeah I mean yeah it's basically it's 90 I mean when I was in the league the minimum was $42,000 now it's a hundred thousand and the majority make way more than that so it's a completely you know different league for sure I'm gonna I'm gonna make a terrible joke here but you said that LA Galaxy is one of the first teams and I'm pretty sure it's because they had Latin America, see so just all our Latin boys playing for them early on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I they've been there for a while. A lot of Latinos, um, you know, a lot of the players that were on the national team, they were coming out of LA. Um, there was a bunch of Latinos from LA and from San Diego, and yeah, I mean, yeah, back then, you know, the national teams were filled with Mexican Americans. Nowadays, you know, you fill them with players playing in Europe and all over the place right. in Europe. Back then, you know, the national teams would look to Mexico a lot. You know, what Americans play in Mexico, where can we get? Now there's so many players everywhere that, I mean, yeah, it's it's the competition is much higher. It's, there's a lot. A lot was of that sort of playing. your experience? Um, did you ever consider Mexico as a national team or you were pretty set on, on the U.S.? For a while? I, I actually, I played for them, I mean, multiple times. I, I, I think I went to at least seven, eight camps for the U-20 national team, Mexican national team. Um their facilities were incredible. The atmosphere and the way you were treated was much different than um, the, the the U.S. national team. For example, back then, I don't know if it's the same now, but back then I remember for the, to go to the camp, you had to pay for your own flight and then they would reimburse you. Whereas in the United States, you know, you had an agent that would do everything and um, all the clothes you got, you, you got new clothes every camp and you got to keep it. I mean, it was just like there was there was a bigger investment in the players in the U.S. 
than Mexico. Because in Mexico, I mean, you know, it was, it was an honor to go play for the Mexican okay. national team. And the U.S. national team was just growing and, you know, I guess getting its name a little bit uh, and trying to steal more Mexican-Americans from uh, the Mexican national team. So it made sense. You got treated much better um, in the U.S. national team than you did in the Mexican national team. Although, you know, I, I would say the person that I got along with the most in my life as a coach was probably the director of the Mexican national team. I mean, I'm still friends with him now and Great. he was, he was incredible. But um, other than that, I, I felt like, you know, the treatment otherwise was much better for the U S national team. Yeah. What was, what was the reaction when you decided to switch? <laughs> uh, it was not good. Uh, I remember it was, it, there was, there was a lot of drama because, I, I left Chivas. I, I told them that I was leaving to go to high school and I was just, I just was tired after the accident that we had. I was just like, I'm, you know, I'm done. I don't want to be here anymore. Um, you know, where I lived and everything. I mean, we, we, the players, I think they still live there now. They, they live in these, um, they were horse stalls that were turned into, you know, basically bunk beds. Um, and you stayed there and it was just, it, it just wasn't very nice. And I was just like, all right, I'm leaving. So they, they believed that I was going to high school and and then you know two months later they find out I signed for MLS. Um, so they they ended up they ended up actually registering me illegally um, and claiming that I still had a contract with them. So I actually I wasn't able to play for six months while that got figured out. We had to get a lawyer to um, kind of apply for for a extension or I guess. To, to look at the case and overturn it. So it went to Switzerland and then the, you know, the court in Switzerland decided that it was false, whatever the Mexican national team was claiming. Wow. Um, but yeah, for six months, I, I, it was like three or yeah, three to five months. I couldn't do anything. I was just training and waiting for them to figure out what, what had happened. So it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely interesting. I mean, back then in Mexico it was very common. I don't know if it's that common anymore for that to happen, but yeah. It was definitely, I mean, I, I played in Mexico six years and out of those six years, every time I tried to get out, it was always an issue. So, um, like in, in Monterrey, when I played for Tigres in the end, um, they just decided they didn't want to pay me anymore. So I kind of had to stay there for four months without getting paid training, showing up. And then I had to sue them so they, they could pay me my money. So it was, yeah, it was it's just different different world <laughs> right I mean, yeah i feel like things are starting to change a lot uh in this terms but how did you experience the difference in atmosphere in mexican fans versus u.s fans in stadiums <laughs> i mean it's it it is a huge difference um for mexico it's i mean it's life or death i mean and the fan base is on top of you all day um you know you go out and everyone recognizes you you know, you have to be careful what you do, what you say, uh, you know, mm. where you are. Everything is much different. Whereas in the U.S. back then, and I still think pretty much now, life is is pretty great. I mean, you know, you, you get paid a lot of money to do what you love and um, right. don't really have the pressure that you do when you play in Europe or you play in Mexico or you play in other leagues. Um, just because it's a newer league. So, you know, the fan base is great, but it's a growing league. So, it's not as life or death as, you know, playing in a Tigres Monterrey game, which is, you know, big classico and, or a big rivalry or something like that. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I guess 
in my experience, the best place to play um, fan-wise in MLS was definitely Portland because Portland's fans were incredible and um, their fan base was unreal. They were just, yeah, it was, to me, that was the best stadium to go play at. It was, it was pretty awesome. Yes. That's amazing. So um, I know Scott would appreciate if we um, did a little bit of the interview in Spanish. Omar, we, okay. if we did that. Yeah. Um, so if you want, I, I can go ahead. I have a few more questions for you. Um, okay. But if you want, I can, I can make them in Spanish. So the first one, sí. yes. ¿cuál es la, la mejor experiencia que has tenido en tu carrera y cuál es la peor? Um, supongo que de las peores pues será las, las lesiones y la lesión con el pie y todo eso. Pero aparte de las lesiones, en cuanto a personas, en cuanto a experiencias dentro del campo, fuera del campo, ¿cuál es la mejor y la peor que has tenido? Sí, yo creo que, bueno, mi, mi mejor experiencia yo creo que fue al principio cuando, cuando me escogieron, nomás porque me escogieron primero y, y fue, digo, es, es un, en Estados Unidos es un honor ser escogido primero y, y viene con muchas cosas buenas y obviamente con mucha presión, pero este, no sé, ese momento para mí fue inexplicable y, y muy bonito para mí, para mi familia. Eh, para todos, digo, no nada más me estoy haciendo, en ese momento no nada más te estás haciendo profesional, pero te están escogiendo como, no sé, una gran estrella o una futura gran estrella, algo así entonces, eso fue un momento definitivamente que me ya, o sea, de alguna manera fue muy bonita, la peor yo creo que este yo creo que obviamente pues el, el, el choque que tuvimos en, en Chivas estuvo muy fuerte, donde pues sí, éramos 25 o 26 en el camión y no más fuimos poquitos los que en realidad salimos ilesos. Este, que, pues digo, hay cosas del fútbol donde obviamente eh, batallas un poquito, todo se ve muy bonito, pero incluye mucha... No, no nada más es jugar y, y hacer las cosas bien. Al final de cuentas, tienes entrenadores que tienen una opinión, este, directivos que tienen su opinión, agentes, gente, el, el, la gente. Eh, lo más difícil para mí, yo creo que fue tener que aprender a um, lidiar y, y eh, pues sí, a, en realidad aprender a poder este, llevarme bien con gente que a lo mejor tenía una opinión diferente o, o sí, por ejemplo a mí me tocó muchas veces que llegaba un técnico nuevo, que se despidieron un técnico y llegaba uno nuevo, el técnico nuevo pues no era jugador de él, entonces lo más difícil era encontrar la manera de que te dé la confianza de volver a jugar y de que este, te lleves bien con él al principio, cuando tenía, no sé, 17, 20, 21 años, batallé mucho en llevarme bien con los técnicos que no me escogieron. Y para mí fue, mentalmente fue muy complicado, además de que seguía, seguía lesionado. Fue muy complicado poder entender por qué no jugaba de vez en cuando este, con, con técnicos que yo no conocía y ellos no me conocían a mí. Entonces, cuando, cuando eres chiquito y, y eres bueno, juega siempre. Lo difícil es entender que cuando ya eres profesional, pues ya es un trabajo y, este pues sí, no nada más 
no nada más es jugar bien, te tienes que llevar con el técnico, tienes, él, él va a tener su opinión, va a este, tener a, a sus jugadores, y si no eres jugador de él, pues no vas a jugar. Y lo más difícil fue aprender a no jugar y estar bien, que no, que no, no, no esté jugando. Sí, sí, desde luego yo creo que cualquier persona que, que juega fútbol suficiente tiempo ha pasado por una situación parecida, en la que a lo mejor pues el entrenador simplemente tiene un gusto mejor por, por otro futbolista y no puede uno hacer nada. Y sé que esto lo has mencionado al principio de la, de la entrevista, que uno pues al final tiene que enfocarse en controlar lo que puede controlar, pero me gustaría saber qué consejo le darías a una persona que se encuentre en esa situación, en esa situación, sobre todo por primera vez, en la que a lo mejor pues llega a una universidad nueva o está jugando en high school o en un equipo profesional nuevo y por primera vez se encuentra en esa situación en la que el entrenador simplemente prefiere a otro y por muy bien que lo haga en el campo, por mucho que del 100%, pues a lo mejor no encuentra los minutos que espera, ¿no? ¿Qué, qué le dirías a alguien que esté en esa situación? Sí, yo, yo creo que lo más importante es ser paciente. Yo nunca fui paciente y en muchas ocasiones me causó muchos problemas porque este, hablaba un poquito de más y me metía en problemas con los técnicos y, y metía presión cuando en realidad pues, mi, mi trabajo era quedarme callado e intentar hacerlo mejor y controlar lo que yo pudiera. Eh, yo creo que lo más importante es aprender que no puedes controlar todo y tienes que estar este, tienes que ser suficientemente inteligente para saber cuándo hablar y cuándo quedarte callado y para mí los primeros años fue, hasta en los últimos fue difícil este, quedarme callado cuando yo veía algo que para mí era injusto me recuerda un poco a mí, perdón por decir esto pero me recuerda un poco a mí, mira perdón por interrumpir pero tengo que irme tengo un compromiso, de verdad que no es un compromiso tan grande, pero es una chamusca de fútbol que, que me tocó ahorita. Pues, y, co y como ya me, ya me retiré, no tengo muchas oportunidades para jugar, pero gracias no por preocupes. tomar este tiempo, Omar. Mira, yo gracias. voy a tener unas preguntas para ti sobre, sobre el Osco y todo el proceso, entonces si no te importa te voy a mandar un recuerdo claro. por, por LinkedIn. Claro que sí, cualquier cosa aquí estoy para ayudar. Fue, fue un gusto. Sí, muchas gracias. Fue un placer meet all of you and thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. I have oh, to head yeah, out, yeah. But, but thank you so okay. much. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to talk to you guys. Mark. Hey, thank Omar, you. one more question for you. Yeah. Um, did you did you play with uh, Jay Demerit there in yeah, Vancouver? Yeah, I did. Yeah, he, he, I, I really liked him. He was, he's awesome. Yeah. We still once in a while message each other for sure. Yeah, I had him on the uh, podcast. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. Um, that's actually how I came across you was um, – He commented on like yeah. on LinkedIn. It showed up. Yeah. That he commented yeah. on something that you did when you graduated from law school, and yeah. um, that's awesome. I was like, well, that'd be cool to have him on. And then <laughs> you know, I had you know a connection to Alfredo and Marcos, and I kind of there's so many um, you know Spanish speakers who play soccer, yeah. Yeah. and obviously the I don't obviously a lot of the families don't speak English, so I thought it would be cool to yeah. kind of yeah. make that happen, but um. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. This yeah, was a lot of fun. yeah, I um, I really appreciate it. Um, it no a, problem. Have you on? So no uh, problem. If I can, if I can help in any way, let me know. Um, if okay. you need other players, so whatever. Are you, are you based out of um Texas, or where are you out of? Now? Uh, I I just moved to Columbus, Ohio, so I'm I'm okay. here for the foreseeable future, I guess. Gotcha. Yeah, I uh, I was born there. So. Oh no way! <laughs> yeah, 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 that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> that's um, awesome. 
As a matter of fact, the um, the academy director there for the crew, Kelvin Jones. Have you yeah, met him? I, I, I met him. He's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. So he was my son's coach when he was a kid. Oh no way! He, he lived in. He's from Virginia. Yeah, and, of course. Uh, yeah, he, he's yeah, a, so. very close friends with my agent. That's how I. I so when I first yeah. moved here, um, my agent got me in contact with them, and I went over to the club and just got to see it. It was pretty yeah. cool. And yeah, Calvin Jones is awesome. So yeah, welcome back, Omar. This is uh, awesome. Appreciate you jumping on, uh, Thank Marcos you. and Alfredo. Um, welcome back as well. Um, I thought it was great. Um, what I'm going to do is combine the first recording with this one, so um, it'll be one longer podcast. But uh, I thought the first one was fantastic. So um, it's great to have you back. Appreciate you uh, being in Europe and, and still being willing to jump on uh, at night. Thank so, you. Appreciate it. Um, um, one thing that I wrote down, the first note I made to ask you about was like your interaction with coaches and um, sometimes I'm sure you had great coaches. I'm sure you had coaches where you're like, what is this person talking about kind of thing? You know, what's their, what's their angle here? And maybe just talk about some of the, some of your experiences where, you know, coaches kind of did a great job and then where they fell flat for you. Um, and you know, for the rest of the team for that matter. Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess initially throughout my professional career you know the first five years i think i struggled with my relationship with the coaches um especially because you know as a kid you're used to starting every single game you're you're used to being um kind of i mean the leader of the team and when you walk into a professional environment as a 16 17 year old those things change and you're no you're no longer um as important or uh the leader of a group um and obviously that comes with not playing every game. Um, and I would take that personally initially, you know, as a kid, I think as a 16 up to 2021, 20, I didn't really know how to handle myself with the coaches in, in that situation, because, you know, I went from playing every single game to not playing at all one weekend or the next. Um, and that was difficult for me to understand and really swallow, um, just cause I, I just wasn't used to it. Um, you know, these co some of these coaches were great to me. Some of them weren't. Um, some of them wanted the best out of me. And, I, you know, I, I, I could say that about the first coach that drafted me. You know, I, I think um, he wanted to get the best out of me. He only lasted 10 games for some reason. Um, Vancouver let him go 10 games into the season. But, um, you know, I... I truly, truly, looking back, I truly, truly appreciate everything that he did for me in that moment because, um, you know, even though at that time I couldn't even play because uh, I couldn't play in Canada as an underage player, he always had my back. Even, um, you know, in training, I would sometimes act up because I felt like things weren't going my way and I didn't know how to react. Um, and he would put up with me and, and um, you know, help me get through these difficult times where I was adapting to a new league, um, a new style of play with other players and, um, you know, jumping from being an amateur to a professional soccer player. So, um, you know, the, I guess that those initial 10 weeks that I had with him in MLS, I, I truly, truly appreciate. Whereas, you know, I think there was coaches after that, um, that it's always difficult because you, they didn't pick you. Um, and whenever, when you come into a situation where, um, 
a coach comes in that didn't really technically want you there, you have to win him in a way. You have to gain his confidence, um, get get him to believe in you. And I struggled with that initially as well. Um, I thought they they were out to get me. They they didn't like me. They didn't want me. When in reality, I mean that's just what the business is like either, you know, most coaches bring in their own players. And if you're not one of their players, then you have to gain that trust and that confidence to be able to play week in, week out. Sometimes you do it. Sometimes you don't. Um, it happened to me many times throughout my career. I mean, my first four years in the league, I had five different coaches and, um, you know, those changes, every single change came with, um, a period of adaptation to the way they wanted to play the players that they brought in and, you know, your ability to respond to um, the adversity of not playing and gaining his trust to be able to play. Um, I did it with some and with some, it didn't go as well. Um, you know, I, I think when I was sold out, out of Vancouver to Tigres, one of the main reasons that that ended up happening was because I didn't get along with the coach the way that I should have. Um, I, I, at times I felt like he was being unfair to me because sometimes he would tell me I was going to play and then the next day I didn't. And, um, that would make me upset, but the way that I react, looking back, the way that I reacted was, was, was wrong. And I should have, um, been able to adapt to those situations where, you know, sometimes things don't go your way. And that's a part of the sport, a part of playing any sport. Um, you're not always going to be on the field and, um, if you don't understand that only 11 players play and there's 30 on the roster and all 30 play a part, um, you become more of a problem than uh, an, an attribute to the team or a benefit to the team. Um, and I think, you know, those first five, six years was very difficult for me to understand until I, you know, I, I was signed to Tigres and at Tigres it was just 18 stars from all over the world that um it was basically impossible to break into a coach that didn't believe in young players and um you know I, I guess I slowly realized that's that's the way it was and I I had to adapt to a situation where I couldn't change what was happening and I wasn't going to be able to change what was happening and from then on I think I was able to mostly get along with the coaches um yeah yeah I found a way to um, adapt and possibly understand why certain situations happen. Of course, not everything goes goes as, as planned, and sometimes there are issues with one in between two people that have strong opinions. I, I definitely have strong opinions about certain things. But, um, yeah, I guess the most important part was learning to understand that um, every single player on the roster has a uh, – plays a part in the success of a team. And that includes, you know, 12 to 30 of the players that don't play and sub in to a game. Um, and I, you know, I think for young players, that's the most difficult thing to learn and to adapt to. And, and the most difficult thing for coaches to be able to handle. Um, I think the best coaches in, in the world are the ones that know how to handle a locker room and the ones that, know how to handle players that don't play. Um, I, I think right. a locker room can easily be broken into different groups 
when a coach doesn't know how to handle, you know, those other 18 players that don't play. Um, and I, you know, I lived it throughout my career and um, I truly, truly believe that the, a player's coach, a coach that knows how to handle certain situations, certain players is um, one that will in the end be the most successful. Yeah. You said something early on um, that you took it personally. And it, I think that what you described is you realized you didn't, you shouldn't take it personally, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just a business to those guys. Um, and, yeah. and largely, like in college, it's a business, right? I mean, they're, yeah. they're not interested in developing players a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, these coaches' jobs are on the line and they're going to play the players that they think um, are the best in that situation, that position, that game. Um, you know, sometimes you feel like that's unfair, but there's things that yeah. you can't really control. And, um, you know, for me, it was very difficult to understand that the first couple of years. And um, it definitely caused a lot of issues that shouldn't have right. really happened. Yeah, um, I have to think that, like, you were you were kind of on an island because, I mean, you were 16 years old to 18 years old. And, you know, it's not like you had a lot in common other than soccer with guys who were 23, 24 and <laughs> older, you know. So, like, who did you lean on and, and who helped you through that, you know, uh, process, I guess, so to speak? Yeah, I think a lot of the veteran players, um, you know, would, would try to help me as much as they could. Um, I think Jay Demerit was one of the mm-hmm. most helpful the couple of first years that I had. Um, you know, trying to understand the place that I was playing on the team and, and the position that I played, um, you know, in certain games because – for me, it was difficult to understand why you know one player was playing um, above me or um, why I wasn't going to start this game and come in as a sub. Um, you know, it, these are things that when you're when you're successful at 10, 12, 13, 14 years old and you're very good and you think you know that you need to play every, every game and you do play every game. When you step into a situation where you don't play anymore, it's really difficult to understand why um, and you know, I, I think at that time I wasn't, and I wasn't good enough to start every game. And I, I, I truly believed I could start every game and I, I had learned what I need to learn to be able to, but I had a lot of things that, um, only come with time and experience. And, um, you know, I, I need to sit on the bench a couple of games and understand why, um, you know, certain situations happen, how they happen, um, learn from other, the other players. And, honestly, wait for my opportunity because a lot of it has to do with waiting for that opportunity to come along. Um, and you know, injuries, red cards, different situations happen that give you the opportunity to succeed. So it's just about being patient. Right. So I guess I have a question about, um, sorry, I have a question about like relationship with coaches because obviously as soccer players, I feel like we've all had that one or two coaches throughout our careers that we just, don't seem to get along with um so i would ask you like what did you do in those situations to maybe gain their confidence or strengthen the relationship because i think we can all agree that obviously not having a good relationship with a coach is not gonna benefit either you or him in any way so i wanted to ask you how would you approach that with the knowledge that you have now and the experience that you have yeah yeah initially i think i wasn't good at this at all i 
Um, I was, I was very bad at it. I, I, like I said, I would take everything so personally. And, um, to, to me, the coaches that, that, uh, I liked the most were the coaches that I thought were honest and, um, you know, in, in my eyes, good people and honesty to me was very important. If I wasn't playing, I wanted to know why. And I wanted to understand, you know, exactly the reasoning, whether it was good or bad. I really, if they thought I wasn't good enough, I wanted to know that. Um, and I think some coaches shied around trying not to hurt your feelings. And that really made, made me mad. And with time I, I am, I try, or I try to understand, um, why they wouldn't tell you these things or why, you know, they try to keep you on your toes and, um, keep you ready in a way to come in and make a difference. Um, so I guess it, it all, with time, I, I just learned to be a little bit more patient. Um, with the coaches and not so confrontational, which, um, you know, even at the end, I, I still felt like I was a little confrontational with some of the coaches just in certain situations, um, which now that I've stepped back, I, I look back on and I think certain situations called for, you know, um, speaking up for yourself and, and trying to understand why in certain situations, you know, I should have just kept my mouth shut and and understood um, what they were trying to tell me and just, you know, been patient and played along the, with the game that, um, you know, all soccer players have to live with. Omar, you think that was just a future lawyer in you trying to come out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I think it all goes back to how you grew up. I, you know, I grew up in a house with my, my dad owned his own business. He always, you know, spoke up for himself and didn't keep his mouth shut and um, kind of learned that from him and, you know, jumping into a situation where, you know, you basically have a boss, which is your coach. Um, I understood that he was my boss, but at certain times, especially with coaches that I thought weren't being honest, not only with me, but with my teammates, um, you know, I would, I would stand up a little bit too much for not only myself, but others. So um, mm -hmm. it definitely caused some friction at times, but um you know, there was coaches I got along with very well that we, we liked each other a lot, and I, I still have a lot of respect for them. And uh, there's coaches that you just never don't. And I feel like that happens in most situations, in most players' careers. You'll you'll hear of, you know, coaches they got along with really well, coaches they didn't. Um, that's just a part of the game. I, I don't think I've ever heard of any of the play any player that's told me that they've got along with every single coach they've played. That's just impossible. It's, I mean, I don't think there's any human in the world that gets along with everyone. So it's just, uh, yeah. I guess, <laughs> learning how to be able to deal with situations where you might not like your coach um, and, you know, being able to, to live with it. Yeah, someone, if someone says that, it's because they probably haven't had enough coaches yet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, exactly. <laughs> so what, one question that I'm thinking about, as you said, that looking back to some situations where you stepped up for yourself and you think that was the right thing and some where you did, but you think it was the wrong thing. Obviously, there is a very fine line with those situations. But looking now back to them, do you think there's any common pattern where like, okay, in this situation, like maybe you usually have to step up for yourself or there is these other situations where like you probably should be quiet and not say anything to the coach? Yeah, I think um, the situation where I shouldn't have really spoken up in pressure a lot was uh you know 
situations where I really had no um, leverage whatsoever. Um, I mean, I, I can give a great example. Um, I was playing for Tigres at the time, and I was loaned out to um, Tampa Bay Rowdies. And um, I was loaned out to Tampa Bay Rowdies because Thomas Rongen was a coach, which he really liked me, and he wanted to play me every game, and he was, you know, he was happy with me. He lasted one game. I got loaned out for four months, and I got there, and he literally got fired a game into my loan. Um, so he gets fired, and the assistant coach takes over. And, you know, just because I knew Thomas Rongen very well, um, I heard how the other guy had gotten the job. You know, the assistant had gotten the job. It was just it was very sketchy. And I spoke up, and, um, you know, not only did I ask him to play, but, you know, I was, I was pretty mean about it. I wasn't, um, I wasn't very politically correct in a way, and a diplomatic, um, in a situation where I needed him because if I didn't play, then I was going to be on loan for four months again where I wasn't playing. Um, so I, I kind of spoke up, and he basically told me, you're training on your own. So for the next four months, I trained on my own. <laughs> uh, instead of, yeah, and, and, Honestly, at that point, I felt great. I was doing really well. I was training really well. Um, you know, I, I felt like I could make a difference in the team if if I played. But given the situation, you know, my 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 agent at the time was Thomas Rongen's son. Thomas Rongen and the coach that stayed didn't have a great relationship. Obviously, you know, there was questions about how he got fired, why, and this and that. And I kind of spoke out, you know, just innocently in a situation where I should have never gotten involved in, you know, I, I ended up not playing four months, um, training for my house, um, you know, getting paid, but not playing. So, um, you know, it was definitely <laughs> a situation where I should just stuck it out, um, kept my mouth shut and hope that, you know, some opportunity arose and I made a difference. I, I immediately a weekend, I was like, I'm training well, coach. I don't understand why I'm not playing what, you know, you're not even putting me on the bench. Um, and it, you know, it was things that were outside of my control and I should have just stayed quiet. I ended up not even having a team to train with. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. <laughs> how, how is that mentally? Like, how do you approach those four months of literally just being alone pretty much? It was horrible. <laughs> it was not fun. Um, yeah. It turned out to kind of a nightmare situation just because, the team was paying for my apartment and they were trying to kick me out. So they, they were trying to kick me out of the apartment. So I couldn't really leave the apartment because when I left, they would, you know, basically kick my, my stuff out. Um, and then I didn't really have anywhere to go because I called Tigres and Tigres was like, no, you're on loan. Like, I don't know what you want me to do. Like, they're supposed to pay you. And then the team, I was, you know, the Rowdies at that time, they, they were like, no, we're sending you back and we don't want to pay you. I mean, it was just, it, it turned into a nightmare of a situation from, you know, a decision to go and play for the coach that had basically helped me out on the national, he was my U20 national team coach at the time. Um, and I, I was very happy to, you know, be able to play with him again. And unfortunately, he got fired, situations you can't control. And then, you know, my mouth got me in trouble a little bit. And um, I, I mean, not that it got me in trouble, I just spoke out defending a situation that I thought was unfair where, you know, I should just not have gotten involved whatsoever. But yeah, it was mentally, it was very difficult. <laughs> Omar, I, I don't need yeah. to pry into the details, but was this conversation one-on-one -on -one or was it in front of uh, like a larger group? No, it was one-on-one. -on -one. I remember perfectly. I went into his, 
to his locker, into the coach's locker room, and I asked, you know, what's going on? You're, I basically told him I'm not playing because you're upset at everything that's going on behind the scenes with my agent, with this. Um, I was like, I'm, I'm here to play. And, you know, if I don't play, my team in Mexico is not going to be very happy. I'm here, obviously, to play. Um, and, you know, it's been two games. I haven't been, even been on the bench, and I don't understand why. Um, he kind of didn't really give me a reason, you know, I mean, it was very evident what was happening, you know, it had yeah. nothing to do with me and I should have just kept my mouth shut and let things, you know, happen as they did. And instead, next day they told me I can't go to training anymore and I have to stay home. And yeah, that was, that was it. <laughs> conversation um, in the professional world, something that uh, agent usually takes care of for you. Yes, but because that, Yes, yes, 100%. But at that time, my agent was the coach that had gotten fired's son. And he he would, he would wasn't even able to talk to the assistant anymore because the assistant didn't want to talk to him anymore. So it was, it was just a situation. It was a very messy situation where the only, the only way I could get a response was if I went directly to him and asked, like, hey, what's going on? Right. Um, and... You know, I should have been a, a lot more diplomatic about it because, you know, in the end, I ended up getting upset. He was upset and we were, I mean, we weren't screaming, but we were definitely, you know, not very happy with each other. And, you know, I walked out of there. Next day, I couldn't go back to training and I kind of got stuck literally four months without playing, doing nothing. So <laughs> just, yeah, a part of the business. The learning moment. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it, it happens. I'm, it happens a lot more than these are stories that never really ever come out because you know nobody likes to talk about all these things bad things that end up happening but um you know i've, I've had quite a bit of situations like that um where i've kind of been stuck just because mainly because of injuries um i i i also got stuck in a similarish situation in mexico towards the end of my yeah my three and a half years that i was there I tore my ACL and um, they just decided they were going to stop paying me. You know, they didn't want to, they didn't want me anymore. So they were just like, we're not going to pay you. I still had two years left on my deal. So um, I kind of had to recover on my own and I, it was just a mess. And usually, you know, in, in countries where there is no strong union, it happens a lot. You know, they're, they're stories, they're nightmare stories that happen quite a bit all across place but yeah i mean coming back to the coaching situation there's definitely situations uh where you shouldn't speak up <laughs> yeah. um i saw a uh, a video i don't know if you guys have heard of gino ariyama he's the uh, women's basketball coach at uconn um and he was talking about body language and like attitude and body language and um i have to think that like when you were in these situations your your body language wasn't great and, um, you know, I, I don't know about you, Alfredo and Marcos, but I honestly can't picture Omar being like kind of a, the way you were describing, like you seem so <laughs> laid back and, and like, you just kind of let things happen. But, uh, I, I kind of would have liked to have seen that, but, um, talk about like how body language can kind of really, can really hurt you. And, um, just the attitude you display and, and, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe looking at it from your a lot more mature lens and, you know, describing, you know, how it hurt you in those yeah, situations. I, 
I have a great story um, that actually got me in a lot of trouble because of my body language. I, uh, we, I was, this was in Vancouver. Um, I was 20 at the time. Um, I hadn't been playing a lot that season. This was the last year at Vancouver um, with this coach that I, you know, I wasn't getting along with very well, but he decided to play me against Chivas USA at LA. Um, and I started and I just, I remember I didn't feel great. I, you know, I, I got subbed out in the 68th minute or 67th minute. Um, I wasn't happy with myself, not with anyone else. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't even mad that I got subbed out. I was very upset with myself and usually how I displayed being upset with myself might've seemed like I was upset at everyone, but in reality, I was just mad at myself. Um, and I came out. I, I subbed out, I didn't shake the other player's hand, and I was very, very, very mad, and I was just locked in myself. And the coaches put their hand out, and I just walked straight past all the coaches, went straight to the end of the bench, and, you know, was very upset. Um, they filmed all of it, and, you know, people started tweeting in Vancouver about how I'm a brat, you know. I basically, you know, disrespected the coaching staff, disrespected the players, disrespected the club, this and that. Um so it kind of turned into a little bit of a drama and, you know, it came all out all over the news. I had to publicly apologize, not only to the team, to the coach. Um, I mean, the, the coach understood because um, that I wasn't upset at him. I was upset at myself. Um, but it put him in a difficult situation because obviously you don't want players moping and, you know, showing that type of body language every time, you know, they get subbed out or things don't go their way. Um, and at, at that time, I, I would, I mean, even towards the end, I, you know, whenever I wouldn't start or I wouldn't play, my reaction to it was never a positive reaction or, or a, um, a good reaction in reality for even just a team. Um, I always wanted to play and I always thought, especially towards the end, I always thought that I, I should play. Um, and when I didn't, I guess I, my body language at training that day or the day after was, was not great. And it would get me in a lot of trouble. And honestly, it gets on your nerves. If I was a coach and I had a player that showed this type of body language, I would be very upset. Um, I mean, not upset, but I would be annoyed. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure I got on the last coach's nerves because, you know, when he didn't play me, I wasn't happy. Um, and nobody's going to be happy about not playing, but. Um, not displaying it in a negative manner is definitely important. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, Omar. Um, I'm sure that was scrutinized so much more at that level. But I actually have a, a funny story that happened to me when I was getting recruited uh, for William and Mary. It was 2017. We were at nationals, and it was a semifinal game. I'd gotten a yellow that, looking back, was borderline, but. I would want to say it's not a yell at the time. <laughs> and I'm getting subbed off just to be careful, saving me for the final. And I'm so upset. Like you, I was stuck in my head, not thinking about any repercussions, just angry that I was coming off. And we had a cooler right next to the bench. And really angry, passed by it, and I kicked it, kicked the cooler. And it was one of those, I'm guessing, like $5 coolers from Walmart. And it cracked. And the water starts coming out of it. And it was getting filmed. So uh, it was on ESPN, pretty sure. And the commentator goes, well, mate, it looks like he's broken the cooler. And <laughs> my parents were watching the game. 
after they commented and said, Marco's like, you never know who could be watching that game. It could have been a college coach that they see and they walk away from that moment. Yeah. And so this is, I mean, an advice to anybody who is going to be playing on TV or is going to be watched highlights or by any college coaches. That those moments matter so so much, and if it wasn't for Norris, hopefully not watching that game, I <laughs> wouldn't have made it to William Mary, you know. But I definitely learned a lot from that, and it's something that I look back and say, man, that was that was really stupid. Yeah, no, I I completely agree, and you know, it, it not only hurts your reputation, but it also puts your coaching your coaching staff and the coach in a difficult situation because. You know, you don't want players reacting that way every time they come out. So they, even if they really like you, they have to do something about it at some point. And, you know, if it continues to happen, you know, you're only going to get in more and more trouble. So, yeah, I mean, I I definitely got in my fair share of trouble for showing, you know, negative body language in certain situations. And um, it really never did me any good. <laughs> so um, there's nothing good about it in reality i mean you, you can internally be upset about not playing everyone is going to be upset about it but um you know it's a team game and if you're only hurting you know, the team energy then you're you're really just a negative on the team so um yeah i i definitely think that's something that i learned a lot about and hopefully you know anybody watching it would too and I, feel, I feel like that, that sums it up very well. Um, the fact that like you're never going to get anything good out of it. If the only repercussions of you showing negative emotions are going to be negative, um, whether it is from the coaches, the people that are watching you, or even yourself, maybe if Marcos gets a, hits a harder cooler, maybe he gets injured and can't play on the next game. Yeah. So you never know. Because I actually had a team, like an old teammate of mine just happened that to him. Um, he hit something because he was mad he got subbed off. and. He got injured for a couple games. Um, but my next question was going to be about when you notice in those games that you're in that negative like loop of thoughts where you're just not doing well. I'm sure early in your career, it was much harder to get out of those situations in a game. But uh, I'm sure with experience, you probably found out a way or like something that worked for you um, to get out of those situations and maybe start performing better. And if that's the case, if you have any advice about how to do that i feel like any soccer player has has been in that situation and would love to hear yeah yeah i i you know i i think the best players in the world are the strongest mentally by far um i think for me by far my my biggest weakness was my my mental side of the game 100 percent um you know, in situations where things weren't going my way, um, especially initially, I didn't know how to react at all. And um, my negative emotions would start to show, you know, I, I would only make more mistakes. It wouldn't help me. Um, and honestly, the team noticed it. Um, they immediately, you know, started making me go through a sports psychologist that was helping me to calm down in situations where, um, you know, things weren't going my way. And I wasn't performing in the way that I should have. And this was all because I would personally pressure myself to try and be the best always. You know what I mean? I, I came in being drafted first overall and I thought I needed to show that I was the best player on the field every time. And if I wasn't, 
I was doing things wrong. And, um, you know, the best players in the world have bad games all the time. And to me, that was the end of the world. And every game that I didn't play well was the end of the world. And with time, I kind of just learned it. And, and the more you play, the more games you play, the more you realize that it's not the end of the world. Every, every game is not the end of the world. And you start, you know, realizing that a bad game won't change the outcome of the season. It won't change the outcome of your career, which to me felt like the end of the world, you know, after 90 minutes where I didn't do, or 60 minutes where I didn't do what I was expected to. Um, uh, getting into the specifics of that, uh, some tactics that people can employ to try to yeah, avoid uh, that feedback loop. So there's so much film that we love to watch for a particular game where you knew you just had a terrible game. <laughs> was it better for you to just, you know, I'm not going to watch that game uh, or I'm going to wait a couple days to see that film. And then once I'm in a better mentality, I'll get to it. Yeah, I, I personally would just wait. I would wait a couple of days or two, three days to calm calm down, feel the negative emotion that I would, and then, you know, try to analyze what I did wrong and get better. Um, in the moment on the field, when I felt like things weren't going my way, what, what I was taught to do was just kind of try and relax in that certain situation. I, I was taught to, to try and meditate. I mean, that's basically what all the sports psychologists try to teach me um, to do, you know, put myself in a position in my head where, I was doing something positive or, or, you know, changing whatever I did negative into a positive motion, whether that was a better pass, a better shot, um, you know, putting back of the net, whatever that was, um, trying to change that negative um, play, that negative aspect of the game that you know, turned you into this negative emotion person, try to do that same movement, but in a positive way and then hopefully build on that and, and get a little bit better as the game went on. So in reality, um, yeah, that's, that's what I tried to do. Did it work every time, you know, depended on, on the game, on the situation, but, um, that's what worked the best for me. Yeah. I can't imagine the pressure that you felt like as a 16 year old, I mean, as a 16 year old, I was a complete bonehead. You know, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, in high school soccer, I was flipping off referees and just doing really stupid stuff. So I can't imagine being like the number one draft pick and all the pressure that you felt. Um, I mean, how do you think that that impacted you through your career? You know, because obviously the way you felt as a 16 year old, it didn't just go away overnight. Like that pressure must have you had so much to live up to. Right. And um, I can't imagine how that has impacted you even probably to this day, I, I would maybe venture to guess. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think, yes, the first two years, it, it was definitely very difficult to deal with just because not because of the outside pressure, just because of the mm -hmm. pressure that I put on myself mainly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I thought I had to be the best player and I, I believed that I could be that player. And um, when things didn't turn out that way, you know, I would kind of, block myself out and, um, beat myself up. Um, mm -hmm. so it, it, yeah, it definitely didn't help at that time, but you know, there was a lot of positives that came out of, you know, being drafted first overall. I, I wouldn't change that whatsoever. I think, um, you know, the, the only thing that would have helped me better or would have helped my career a lot better would have been to been drafted into a situation that 
or into a team, into an organization that was well-established and could help a young player um, thrive. Toward, I, you know, all the Vancouver Whitecaps treated me incredibly and were incredibly incredible to me. Um, you know, they were still a new team and a new organization that were building their own roster and were building their front staff in reality. You know, they were still um, getting their feet went to Major League Soccer. They they weren't established um, or an established club like, you know, some of the big clubs that develop and make these great players. So, um, yeah, I mean, if I could possibly change something in my first two, three years would be that would be really just that. Um, yeah, I, I guess as, as I got older, that really didn't matter as much just because I got injured so much. Um, <laughs> you know, I, after my second year, I was basically out for two years and people kind of forget really fast. I mean, in sports, it happened to a bunch of players, you know, once you're out for a year, two years, whatever, that pressure or that uh, spotlight that you had as being first overall or trying or being that, that player, um, kind of turns off, uh, especially when you're out of the spotlight for so long. And I, I basically was injured for two years, basically 24 months. And, um, you know, I was nowhere to be seen. So that spotlight kind of just went out. Yeah. Um, let's shift gears. Um, before we started recording, we talked about, you know, growing up as a Latino in the U S and, um, in, you know, some of the things that you guys faced you know, Marcos and Omar, um, and, you know, how that impacted you and, 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 you know, maybe just kind of tell, tell the story of, of, and of how that, ha- you know, growing up that way and, and, you know, where it took you through life and all that. Good, I, all that I think this part of the interview would be pretty cool to do in Spanish. If you guys want si to sure. en español. Lo que sí, está bien. Go sí. for it. Adelante. Marco, te dejo empezar a ti. <laughs> Eh, de verdad que para mí fue una historia diferente porque vine de un, de un lugar de privilegio y creo que tengo que decir eso primero eh, la mayoría de gente que viene a los Estados Unidos que son latinos no vienen de un lugar de, de privilegio y mis papás quieren el dinero para poder meterme en un equipo cabal cuando vine y poder quedarme en ese equipo por ocho años y recibir una oferta para estar en movimiento. El problema es que para 90% de los latinos, eso no es la historia. No tienen los recursos tal vez para poder pagar un, un equipo de club por 8 años. Esos 8 años van a ser 40, 50, 60 mil dólares. Entonces, para mí fue un privilegio poder jugar por tanto tiempo. Tener, tener el apoyo de mis papás porque... Cada fin de semana era un gran viaje a, a Maryland, a Pennsylvania, a estados que estaban como a 3, 4, 5 horas. Eh, otros latinos no tienen papás que tienen el, el tiempo porque tienen que trabajar los fines de semana. Entonces, sí, para mí fue un gran, gran privilegio jugar fútbol y poder hacerlo en, en William Mary con el apoyo de mis papás, con los recursos que, que me dieron. Sí, yo, yo creo que no somos buenos ejemplos de, de esto porque yo también crecí en una situación muy similar a la tuya donde pues eh, mis papás me pudieron dar 
todo lo que yo necesitara, necesitaba para poder salir adelante. En realidad, a mí nunca me faltó nada. Mis papás este, me apoyaron en todo lo que hice. Eh, me llevaron a miles de torneos desde que tenía tres años, a nacionales a Orlando, eh, hasta ODP, que en ese entonces era algo muy importante. Este, siempre estuvieron ahí y siempre estuvieron apoyando. Mi papá, desde que tengo dos años no nada más económicamente, pero emocionalmente y, y como apoyo siempre estuvo ahí. Entonces, en realidad, nunca me faltó nada que, como tú dices, el 90% de los latinos pues, no tienen. Y, y es un problema muy grande en este país donde creo que ha mejorado, pero sigue siendo un problema donde, pues, obviamente, lo económico es muy importante para poder salir adelante como futbolista en, en Estados Unidos. Obviamente hay mucho talento, digo, cada vez hay más talento latino eh, que está saliendo a la MLS, a los países europeos, a la Liga MX este, y a otras ligas por todo el mundo. Pero sí, digo, yo no, a mí no me tocó vivir eso y en realidad yo también crecí en una ciudad sumamente latina donde pues nunca fui una minoría, siempre fuimos la mayoría, entonces no... Nunca viví nada de eso tampoco. Una cosa que pienso yo es tal vez el apoyo de la familia. No solo la familia nuclear. Por ejemplo, mis abuelitos pudieron ver, creo que, tres partidos en los Estados Unidos. Y cómo me hubiera gustado tener, tenerlos ahí por al menos 10, 15 partidos. Por el apoyo de mis tíos, de mis primos más cercanos. Y, Alfredo, yo creo que puedes hablar un poco de eso. Porque tú jugaste acá en los Estados Unidos sin el apoyo de tus papás físicamente. Sí, sí, eso además es un poco la, la gran diferencia que, que yo tuve de, de jugar en España, jugar en Estados Unidos, fue que, que yo incluso estando en España, en Sevilla, que estaba a 400, 500 millas de mi casa, casi 700, 800 kilómetros, aún así mis padres hacían el esfuerzo de, pues, de conducir 7, 8 horas y a lo mejor pasar un fin de semana. Eh, solo para verme jugar un partido, aún sabiendo que yo ese año en que estuve en Sevilla no jugué casi nunca. Y, y tuve la suerte de que, por ejemplo, en la pretemporada, durante el primer mes y medio, no fallaron a ningún partido, ya fuera de vacaciones, se venían solo para el fin de semana, o lo que fuera. Entonces sí que es verdad que para mí fue un cambio muy grande, porque una de las, de las cosas que a mí más me, me ayudó de pequeño a, a mirar en retrospectiva los partidos y a, y a poder desahogarme, era que yo entraba en el coche con mi padre o con mi tío con los dos y siempre me estaban escuchando. Siempre tenía un par de orejas cada uno para que yo me desahogara o para que yo les dijera lo contento que estaba o para simplemente escuchar. Y eso al final, no tenerlo en Estados Unidos, no solo porque no estaban, sino porque cuando yo terminaba los partidos eran las 4 o 5 de la mañana en España y no podía tampoco llamarles, pues al principio sí que fue un poco más difícil eh, y tuve la suerte pues bueno de contar con Marcos como un hispanohablante cuando, cuando vine, pero, pero porque en inglés yo no habría podido expresarme de la forma que me habría gustado expresarme en español. Y Marcos sabe que, sobre todo my freshman year, mi primer año aquí, fue difícil para mí adaptarme al estilo de juego que tenían algunos de nuestros compañeros, adaptarme a, a un juego más físico y menos eh, de mantener el balón y de cuidar el balón, y que ya acababa muchos partidos y acababa ofuscado porque, porque no me la pasaba <risa> porque había muchos momentos que yo estaba acostumbrado a que me la pasaran y simplemente no era así 
y eso a mí personalmente pues sí que me, me costó un poco más y fue pues eso, gracias a tener el apoyo de, de alguien que hablaba español que, que se hizo más ameno el camino. Pero, pero sí es lo que dices, el apoyo de la familia a mí siempre me ha parecido el, el aspecto número uno. Eh, os quería preguntar a vosotros, porque a mí personalmente pues no me ha pasado, pero tampoco tengo tanta experiencia jugando, jugando aquí, si habéis tenido alguna experiencia de, de racismo como minoridad. Si alguna vez habéis tenido que enfrentaros a alguna situación en el campo fuera de él en la que pues de una forma u otra sufriréis algo así. Yo personalmente no. <ríe> a mí nunca me tocó ningún tipo de racismo en ninguna situación. En realidad, en realidad nunca lo viví. No sé si tú, Marcos, pero yo no. No, Alfredo, yo tampoco. Eh, creo que ayuda que viví y pasé tanto tiempo en Fairfax, en Nova, Northern Virginia, donde hay tantos latinos, donde hay mucha gente afroamericana o asiáticos. You name it, ¿va? Entonces, nunca... Nunca me pasó eso. Gracias a Dios. Sí, qué bueno. ¿Y a ti? A mí no. No, ni el chiste, ¿no? Nada. Y además parezco, tampoco parezco tan español, parezco blanco. Aquí. Ah, bueno, Alfred, pero no sé si te recordás cuando estábamos jugando contra Urio el primer año, 2019, uno de los centrales de ese equipo me dijo algo cuando estaba en la banca. Y yo... Tan enojado, le respondí algo, pero no pude decir más. Porque como estaba en la banca, estaba lesionado. <risa> algo me suena. Y a, y a cuidar mi relación con, con el entrenador. Pero mm. de verdad que no, pero. Scott, mm. um, just to surmise what we've talked about, Omar and I, um, on the same page that we come from, not the ordinary story of a Latin American moving to the United States, in that we've had a lot of privilege and financial support of our parents to try to pay for eight, nine years of club soccer or going to tournaments every weekend and being there um, so much in, in ways that some Latin Americans uh, who don't have the resources can't afford to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's not, I guess, the most common story, right? I mean, especially the immigrating families. Yeah. Um, yeah. You guys have anything else to add or or uh on on that topic or I don't know. I would like to highlight um the fact that you know none of you guys have experienced anything like that because I know in Spain, whenever there was someone that was a minority on the field, people let them know, like in some way or another. And it's Vinicius. one of the things that like even the parents from outside like don't usually set the example very well. Like You know, for, for like South Americans, for example, you say the word panchito that they use. And like sometimes when, when you talk to your friend, like it's, it's a nice way to say it. But if you use a different tone, it can get disrespectful as well. And, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that I have personally noticed as well about the U.S. is that there is no disrespect around the game, um, usually whatsoever. Um, whereas in Spain, like the nicest thing... <laughs> that uh, you're going to hear from the crowd if you make them mad is like son of a something. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I think that's that's one of the things that is very nice about playing in, in this country, that you don't have to worry about external things like that. And even yeah. something you have to be careful with, right? Because when I first came here, I thought that, you know what, the refs are not going to understand what I'm saying. And I could get away <laughs> with certain things. No, no, no. The amount of refs that speak Spanish are just 
increasing by the day. Yeah. Something else. I will say sometimes that's that's played to my advantage, especially in college soccer, because once I know that the ref knows Spanish, it will be a conversation between just him and I if I'm yeah. the only one speaking Spanish on the field. Yeah. And that yeah. gets gets you like a closer relationship with him. So he will actually listen to you when you like talk to him or when you like have something to say about his calls or stuff like that. So that is something that like we can also use to our advantage. I have to admit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what did you experience any, um, you know, I guess discrimination in the MLS or, you know, anywhere else you played or, or was it just not a thing in the U S like it is, I mean, I, it may not be for, it, it it seems to be that there's a lot more of it in Europe. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I I never lived it or saw it in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I never experienced it at all. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, one other thing I was going to ask you about was um, <clears throat> kind of shifting gears again. Uh, let's talk about you know you had a two-year injury you had four months away from a team that you described and like how did you kind of still pulling at the the mentality theme I guess is is it like how did you um I, I don't know like survive it isn't the right word but you know have the resilience how did you have the wherewithal to be resilient through those situations and and just know that you were working towards getting back on the field. Um, I'm sure you had dark days through some of that stuff too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I played a total of what, 11, 12 years um, professionally and six of them I was injured. So I was injured quite a bit. I mean, I tore my ACL twice. I broke my foot five times um, and seven surgeries and a bunch of different things happening all at the same time. And, um, there was, you know, through injuries, there's no way, but through reality and you really have no other choice, but you know, if you want to play again, then you have to rehab and try and come back as strong as you possibly could. Um, you know, it's, it's very difficult because every time you get injured, you feel like you come back as a different player just cause you feel like, you know, you might lose one step here, one step there. And, um, it can be me- mentally taxing to, um, realize that at some point you will come back. You know, I, I felt like after every injury, although, you know, I, I might've changed a little bit as a player, I still felt like I was able to come back at a high level and, and mm-hmm. compete. Um, I mean, I, I retired because I tore my ACL the, le- the last time and it was very difficult for me to, you know, kind of end on that note. Um, and, would always push me through the other injuries was I, you know, I didn't want to end injured. I wanted to be back and, you know, on play on a, on a field on my own two feet and end my career on my own two feet. In the end, it, it didn't happen that way, but you know, it was because of different life circumstances. You know, I, if, if today I feel strong enough today after all my rehab from my knee that I could come back and that's all because I, I prepared myself mentally with the idea that if an opportunity came around, I, I would take it. The end opportunities came around. I didn't take them just because of other things, but, um, you know, I, my, my mentality was always, I I don't want to retire injured. (laughs) So yeah, that's as much as I 
could push through. Yeah, I yeah. one question that that I have, um, and I know you already touched upon it a little bit, but uh, so I had a, a bad injury, my first surgery last year as well, and I think one of the things that helped me the most was my environment and feeling the support from the people that were around me. Um, so obviously, I, I was very lucky to live with like four of my best friends and also having my mom come for like Thanksgiving and my sister, which was literally the week after I got surgery and everything about my environment was very nice for me. But I know you've had injuries where like you've definitely felt lonely or you've been in a place where like, you know, maybe it was like not as bad as Tampa Bay, but you definitely were not as as surrounded as you would have liked to. Um, so I wanted to ask you, how, how does that feel? How do you overcome that? And how do you find that support where you might feel like there's none around you? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a lot of situations where, you know, I, I felt like I was alone. But um, I think what always got me through it was obviously my having the support of my, my family. And they always, you know, in a way, I always felt like they had my back no matter what. And, um, you know, there, there was sometimes, I mean, my first ACL injury, I tore it in, Colum in Colombia, playing in Colombia. And the team that I was on, I was on loan, and they, they didn't want to pay for my surgery. And my team, Tigres in Mexico, didn't want to pay for my surgery either. So I was kind of in limbo for a, for a month where I didn't know what was happening. Nobody really wanted to pay for it. Nobody you know, was taking claim of who was going to pay for what. And, um, you know, I, I always had the support of my parents telling me it's okay. You know, worst case scenario, we'll come back and we'll we'll do it here. You know, I, I never, I never felt alone mainly because you know, my parents were always around. So I always in a way had a support system, no matter what. That's cool. Yeah. Um, you guys have anything else? It's late over there and Marco's got to run anyway. So we're coming up on an hour. Yeah. Omar, what other wisdom do you have to impart before, uh, before we get off? <laughs> <laughs> the next time I'm going to have Jay Demerit, I almost sent him a message to see if he wanted to jump on because I'm sure you guys can tell some pretty good stories. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. definitely talk about my little uh, tantrums for sure. <laughs> 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 but yeah. Okay. That's cool. awesome. Um, you guys have anything else? Any other questions? Just thank you okay. again um, for the insight. Yeah, thank and, you. You know, yeah. for opening up so much and telling us in so much detail about um, your story and, and your experiences because it, I know it helps me and I'm sure um, whoever decides to give a listen to this podcast is not going to regret it at all. Yep. Thank, thank you all. I really enjoyed it and um, yeah, I wish you both the best. Uh, is your season still? It's obviously still on right now, right? Yeah, yeah. We have so two more season games. Um, okay. We ended up beating Northeastern, by the way. Oh, nice. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But we're we're in that moment of the season where like if you lose you're out and which is okay. so it's it's that moment of the season. But um, I I have to text you because I'll be in Cincinnati um around the eighth of December. I know I mentioned this already, but let me know. I'll definitely I will, yes. Yeah. Let me know. We'll meet up. Awesome. We'll grab, we'll grab lunch or something. Yeah. But I, I hey, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll definitely let you know. Um. But Scott, again, thank you so much for sending this up. Um. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, thank you, Omar. Scott. Um, you have a red sweatshirt to wear on Saturday. 
Something red? Of course. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Good, 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 good. All right. Uh, go Gunners. And uh, I will, uh, I really, really appreciate you guys coming on. Um, and especially with the time difference. I really no appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah. Talk to you guys soon. See you on, Phil. See you soon. See you guys. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Match Play. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com slash matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on social media as well. The links can be found at matchplayrecruit.com. See you on the trip.